0: This is the record that God has given to us eternal life. Ready? This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord." For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. So let's have a few moments of silent prayer to use First John one nine if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together to worship you through the teaching of your word. Nothing is more important in our lives than to understand uh, your will for our lives, to understand your word that you have spoken in history and you have given us a revelation of your thinking, a revelation of who you are, a revelation of our salvation, and that by studying your word we can understand your plan for our lives. Now, Father, as we study Your Word this morning, we pray that You would help us to understand these things and to see how they apply to our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to John, 1 John, chapter 4. 1 John, chapter 4, and we continue in this section, which is focusing on manifesting God's love in the believer's life. We do not see God, we have not beheld God at any time, but the way in which God is seen today is through the evidence of the believer's life, the spiritually mature believer, and his manifestation of God's love in his life. This is the result, or this is related to the commandment that Jesus gave to the disciples in John 13:34 and 35. There Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, that is, by this love demonstrated, manifested in our lives, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. A disciple is not a believer. A disciple is a believer who is advancing to spiritual maturity. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love, especially Christian love, is one of the most misunderstood, poorly understood, confused concepts around. Seems like a, I don't want to sound like a broken record going over it week after week after week, but maybe with all of that repetition, we will get that into our thinking. That the love that is talked about in relationship to the spiritual life is an unconditional, impersonal love that is based on a way of thinking that is grounded on Bible doctrine. It is not emotion, it's not sentiment, it's not feeling a certain way about people, it's not liking someone, it is thinking about them in a way that is based on the Word of God. It is not emotion, therefore, it is thought. The best way, the most succinct way, I think, to define Christian love, biblical love, that is both the love that God has for us as fallen creatures and the love that we are to reflect toward others, and impersonal love and unconditional love, is that love is a mental attitude that seeks the best for its object. That means two things. Number one, it excludes mental attitude sins such as jealousy, bitterness, anger, hatred, or any other related sin, whenever believers get involved in any situation where they're responding to somebody in bitterness or in jealousy, then you are destroying your own spiritual life and you're on a path towards self-destruction. One of the worst things that we can get involved in is bitterness in the soul because bitterness has a way of becoming like a submarine in the spiritual life. It goes underground and all of a sudden it pops up maybe five or ten years down the road, you ha- get involved in some situation, and rather than putting it in the hands of God, you nurture bitterness. And that bitterness is nurtured in a very uh, sophisticated or, let's say, uh, a way that, that uh, hides, that it makes it less overt. So rather than thinking about something all the time or, or um focusing on it in a negative way rather than dealing with it through confession of sin and rather than putting it behind you, just every now and then when something comes up, you just nurture it a little bit, and then you say, okay, now I'm not going to deal with it. And then 15 or 20 years from now, you become a bitter person. This is what, how bitterness, this is the danger of these mental attitude sins, is that they do not manifest themselves or they do not present their most destructive consequences right away. It takes time, and then one day we wake up, and we've got a fragmented soul, and we've become bitter in life, and now it's no longer hidden, but it's become overt, and it's all because we have not had the right mental attitude for uh, many years. So love, first of all, means that there's no presence of mental attitude sin, secondly, it is something positive. It is seeking the best for its object. It is doing that for the person that they don't deserve. It may be the last thing in the world you want to do. It may involve a level of kindness and gentleness which goes 180 degrees opposite from what you feel. But once you learn to make, so once you learn to get to the point where emotion is not the issue, The issue is Jesus Christ. That's why when I chart these things out, I call this a love triplex that involves personal love for God, impersonal love for all mankind, and occupation with Christ. These three things are developed together in our soul. And when we are occupied with Christ, recognizing what he has done at the cross, what he has done in terms of his love for us, that we were completely obnoxious, we run, ran, his going to the cross was completely against his feelings, his emotions in his human nature. The night before he went to the cross, he said, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. He was expressing the fact that in his humanity, his human emotions uh, were not attracted at all to the suffering and the pain that he was going to go through on the cross. Nevertheless, he operated on the objective truth of doctrine in his soul under the filling of the Holy Spirit and went to the cross despite what human feelings might have led him to do. That's what maturity is. It is not operating on our emotions but operating on truth, operating from a position of strength in terms of absolutes. Love seeks the best for its object no matter how obnoxious or undeserving that object might be. Now, we I have pointed out that in the section that we're studying in 1 John 4:12 through 16, the key word here is the Greek word meno. The Greek word meno M E N O is one where and we find a tremendous amount of controversy among Bible students and Bible scholars, M-E-N-O. There are those who think that this is roughly equivalent to believe and that this is a positional reality. This is a false position. And yet you find it cropping up again and again and again. The idea that every real believer always abides. The reality is, as we have studied again and again, that minnow has to do with fellowship. It has to do with continuing in obedience to Christ under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit. It is related to walking by the Holy Spirit and has the idea of, of staying in fellowship, abiding. So when we see this word, the word that ought to come to our mind or the concept that ought to come to our mind is the concept of being in fellowship and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Only the believer who abides in Christ can advance and mature. It's not simply a matter of getting in fellowship, not simply a matter of confessing your sins, but it is a matter of staying in fellowship, abiding in fellowship, remaining in fellowship. What we have learned is that abiding has a mutual aspect to it. The more we abide in Him, the more He abides in us and the more His character is manifested in us. As we abide in Him, we see that God abides in us. We see this in verse 12. 1 John 4.12 No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. That's comparable to the filling of the Holy Spirit. As we are filled with the Holy Spirit... Uh, Our abiding in Christ, the Holy Spirit fills us. He fills us with his word. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Jesus said, if you abide in me, my word abides in you. So God the Holy Spirit fills us. God abides in us. He fills us with his word, and his word abides in us. And the consequence is his love is perfected in us. Corrected translation, his love is brought to maturity in us so that the love that we know from a human viewpoint standpoint as unbelievers is not what's at issue here. This is the unique love that is produced by God the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Now I want you to note here a couple of things in terms of John's developing his his. Uh, Subject matter. He says, no one has beheld God at any time, and he uses the perfect middle indicative of the verb theaomai. The verb theaomai is, this is the second time we find this verb in this epistle. T-H-E-A-O-M-A-I. And it means to look intently on something. Now, the first time John uses, just hold your place here and turn back a couple of pages. The first time John uses this verb is in the very first verse of the epistle. That which was from the beginning which we, the we, as I have said again and again, refers to the apostolic witness, the body of apostles, the disciples. It is not a we, meaning we Christians. It is not a we, John uses to indicate we, meaning uh, me, the writer, and you, the readers. It is a, a we, meaning we apostles. We were the ones who were the eyewitnesses who heard what Jesus taught, who saw his life, saw the miracles with our own eyes, and which we have looked upon, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we looked upon. There's our verb, the aomai. And our hands have handled. We looked intently upon him. Now that's the major theme that he is emphasizing, is the fact that they were eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. They heard his words, and they witnessed his works. Now, in 1 John 4.12, he returns to this theme of what they have seen, what they looked intently upon, and he reiterates this verb in verse 14. It states, and we have seen and testify—that that is, bear witness. It's a technical legal term. And bear witness that the Father has sent the Son... As Savior of the world. And what we see in this section is that John is now specifically applying what he has been teaching to the false teachers present in the congregation in Ephesus. We don't know exactly what it was that they were teaching. You can't put a definite label on them. They they are teaching some form of what is called Docetism. Docetism is from the Greek verb dokeo, D-O-K-E-O, and dokeo has to do with appearance, uh, seeing something, and, and docetism was the idea that, that, um, that Jesus, that, that the second person of the Trinity only appeared to be a man, he wasn't true humanity, and therefore he wasn't, he didn't fit the bill um, I mean, as a, as true humanity. And so there are some problems with uh, their their understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's further evidence that they have other problems as well. There there is some questions whether or not they are willing to accept Jesus as Messiah. And they also seem to have some question as to whether or not Jesus is, is fully God, that he is undiminished deity. So all of these things, and may have been some different elements within the church that held us some different, uh, maybe even contradictory ideas, uh, to one another, but they certainly were confused about the nature of who Jesus was, and they were teaching some uh, very erroneous ideas about uh, Jesus Christ. And so John is going to correct those in these verses. So in verse 12, he says, No one has beheld God at any time. When he goes back to the beginning, he says, What we saw, what we beheld, what we looked upon, He's not saying that they saw God because they didn't. They saw the second person of the Trinity. As a matter of fact, this is the same verb that John uses in John chapter 1. In the first uh, epistle, John says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us in John 1.14, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he's talking about the fact that they saw the Lord Jesus Christ. They were eyewitnesses to his uh, words and works during the period of the Incarnation. In first John four twelve he goes on to say, No one has beheld God at any time. This is sort of a thesis statement here. He's going to come back to this towards the end of this section. I want you to look down with me to uh first John chapter four, verse twenty. There he says, If someone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? See, that sort of forms a bracket on the concept. Of not seeing God. He starts off by laying down a principle. No one has seen God at any time. That's why it is so important to learn doctrine. That's the only way you see God is to study doctrine. That's the only way you learn anything about God. Nobody has any direct encounters with Jesus. Nobody has any direct encounters with God. No one has any intuitive insight as to what God must be like. Nobody has any intuitive insight into his essence or character. What we have, the Scripture says, is nonverbal revelation to the reality of God's existence, but it's only through verbal revelation, that is, the revelation that is inscripturated in the canon of the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's only that inscripturated revelation that gives us specific, concrete, exact, and precise information about God and His character. No one has beheld God at any time. So how do we know anything about God, especially now that Jesus Christ has left? John told us in John chapter 1, verse 18, no one has beheld God at any time, the only begotten God. He has explained him. But if Jesus Christ, the incarnate Jesus Christ, has ascended to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, how is it that people are going to know God? They knew God through the revelation in the living word. They will now know God in the uh, reality of the written word among believers. When the written word is in your soul as Epinosis doctrine, and you mature as a believer so that you are loving one another as Christ has loved you, then that is how people understand what God is. And that is a point that John is making here is the way to know God, to see God, is through the application of loving one another among the body of Christ. See, when the physical body of Christ ascended to heaven, it was replaced on earth by the corporate body of Christ, the church. And so we are the witness, the evidence of who God is, ...and His character, and that is seen and and manifested as we advance to spiritual maturity. So we are to love one another. Verse 12, if we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is brought to completion or brought to maturity in us. Then in verse 13, by this we know that we abide in Him and he and us. The by this refers to what follows because the second part of this verse is a dependent clause. It is a causal clause that explains the by this. Sometimes the by this in John refers to what he has just said, but here it refers to what he says at the end of the verse. We know that we abide in him and he in us because he has and it's a bad translation he has given us of his spirit and we covered this, the exegesis of this, last time, where we saw that this construction is not a strict genitive construction where you would simply have the phrase to pneumatas, where you have a genitive ending. But it has, at the beginning, the preposition ek, and "ek" as a preposition must always take a genitive noun. Now, when it does, that preposition "ek" has one of four meanings. The primary meaning is source or derivation, but it also has the idea of means. And when you look at this phrase, you can't just say, "Oh, what fits? What do I want to see here?" You have to go through the scriptures and look at other places where you have a phrase "ek to." to Pneumatos, and then compare it. And we have just such a phrase back in uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, in a very similar sentence, where John says, By this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given to us. And there the content of the, of the giving was the Spirit, and that's indicated by the relative pronoun. But in verse 13 of chapter 4, we don't have the content of the giving. We have given us by the Spirit, should be understood as means, and then we're not told precisely or explicitly what was given. But the context suggests that what was given us is love. And that would tie with Galatians chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, where love is a production of God the Holy Spirit. And this takes us back to the importance of understanding the mechanic of the Christian life. Now, in every everyday existence, you eat for, for physical nourishment. You sit down at a table and you exercise your volition as to whether or not you 're going to uh, just eat what what 's easy and what is um, uh, appealing to your flesh, and you decide whether or not you're going to have a bowl of ice cream for dinner, whether you're going to have vegetables and some sort of low-fat fish, or or whether you're going to go down to fast food and have a, a Burger King hamburger or Kentucky fried chicken or something like that that's, that's uh, not always that healthy for you. But you exercise your volition as to what you're going to put in your mouth. And then you exercise your volition to chew it up. Uh, sometimes if you're in a hurry, you don't exercise your volition. You just wolf it down. Other times you realize you have to chew your food well like your mother taught you. And then you exercise your volition and you swallow. After you swallow, non-volitional, non-voluntary reflexes take over. You don't have anything to say about how uh, slow or how fast that food is digested. Your volition doesn't affect what chemicals are secreted in your stomach in order to break down the food into sugar. Your volition isn't involved in how that those chemicals are transported from your stomach through the bloodstream to the uh, cells in your musculature. That's non-voluntary. But then you have to use your volition again as to how you use that energy that comes from the food. So eating involves volition. Digestion is non-voluntary. That's automatic. God provided the ability for your body to do that, and it's automatic. And then use... How you use that energy, once again, depends on your volition. Now, this is exactly what happens in the spiritual realm. You have to decide whether you're going to eat spiritual food. You have to decide if you're going to be in Bible class on Sunday morning, Wednesday night. You have to decide during the week if you're going to listen to a tape. You have to uh, set aside time. Sometimes it's good to set aside a specific place in the house where you can sit down and be comfortable, and you have a tape recorder and a little notebook there, and you can just sit and listen. Others of you, it's easier to listen when you're in the car. I was uh, talking with uh, somebody this last week, and they were telling me how they, uh, they come home from work and they've had a long day, and they usually sit down, they'll listen to a tape for about 15 minutes, and then they'll fall asleep. Well, that's okay, but what happens is they end up going through a tape about five times, before they go on to the next one because of that process and they take and they'll take notes and they go over it again and again and he said, You know, I'm amazed how much I get out of it the second and third time that I didn't even pay attention to the first time. But you have to use your volition. you have to set a plan. If doctrine is a priority, it becomes your life. doctrine isn 't just something you do. the Christian life is not just something else you do along with uh, your job or your career, along with your various hobbies, along with being um, a parent, along with being a student. Learning the word is your life as a believer that 's if you when you get to that point. That's when you will start really growing and advancing in the uh, spiritual life. So volition is involved, and you have to decide that you are going to take in the Word. So you exercise positive volition, and you take in the Word on a daily basis. Now, God the Holy Spirit is going to make that understandable to you, and as we've studied in our Grace Learning Spiral, that at that point you have to exercise your volition again. See, you, just like sitting down, you sit down to eat. You make a decision, okay, I'm going to eat a healthy meal tonight, and I'm going to have some uh, baked salmon and some broccoli and and uh, not a whole lot of uh, carbohydrates, and I'm going to avoid having cheesecake for dessert or chocolate sauce on my ice cream and whatever it might be, but you're going to eat healthy. That's one decision. Then when you sit down and eat, you have another decision, that's how you're going to chew your food, etc. And that's the same application here. The Holy Spirit makes doctrine understandable, but you still have to understand it. God is not going to understand it for you. Some doctrines aren't that difficult to understand. Other doctrines, such as predestination, election, the decrees of God, are more difficult to understand. It's not that you can't understand them. But that they demand, uh, more basic doctrine before you can understand them. And in order to really grasp them, you have to spend some time thinking about it. See, the spiritual life isn't a life where God's going to, uh, put the food on the table for you, chew it up for you, digest it for you, and use it for you. It's not passive mysticism. That's the problem you get into with a lot of Pentecostal, charismatic, and holiness theologies is they render the Christian life passive. Just let go and let God. That was the big catchword about a hundred years ago. And it's pure passivity and that's not what the Bible emphasizes. The Bible emphasizes volition and accountability. So you have to think. That's what the Bible talks about when it mentions meditation concentrating on the Word, thinking about it. You might listen to a tape for 10 or 15 minutes, and then you, you, you so many things are going on in your mind, you pop that tape off and you sit and you think about it for a while. And that's uh, part of that process. And then once you understand it, then you can believe it. Just because you hear me say it 275 times, and you think that because it's familiar to you, you understand it, doesn't mean you do And you can't believe something you don't understand. So if you haven't gotten to that point of understanding it, then you can't believe it for it to be converted by the Holy Spirit into epinosis doctrine. You have to reach this point of understanding, and that's why you see a lot of Christians sometimes... Who they may be able to regurgitate a lot of doctrine because they've been listening for a long time and they may know all the verbiage, but they really don't understand it yet. They think they believe it, they think it's epinosis, they think they're on their, on the fast track to spiritual maturity, but they still don't have a clue because they haven't spent enough time to thinking about it to understand it. Well, you think about it, you understand it, you believe it, and that 's like swallowing it, and then at that point, the filling of the Holy Spirit takes over, and the Holy Spirit breaks that spiritual data down in your soul and just as the bloodstream in your body transports all of those chemicals out to the various muscles so that you can then use them, the Holy Spirit breaks down that doctrine and stores it in all the all the uh, categories and compartments of your of the mentality of your soul and your memory so that it can be recalled from application later on. Then as you go through life, you come to certain situations, and now you have a choice as to, to apply doctrine or not, to use a faith rest drill, for example, and to claim a particular promise or principle that you've learned in Bible class. Now you have another option to use volition. You can either be positive and say, okay, as the Holy Spirit brings that doctrine to your memory, I'm going to apply it in this situation and see how God is going to uh, take care of the situation so that I can relax and not worry about it. Or you can say, no, I'm not going to do that. I'd rather worry for a while because it just makes me feel better like I'm doing something about the problem in my life. So once again, you have to exercise volition. When we exercise volition at, God, at the hearing of the word, we exercise volition when we think about it and understand it. Then we exercise volition at the end product in application, putting into practice that which we have learned. As that happens, God the Holy Spirit, just as you ate when you were a kid, you would eat. Probably if you were like most kids, you ate... Uh, some of you might have been picky, but you ate a lot. And the more you grew and you hit those adolescent years, it was like you had two hollow legs and you just couldn't fill you up, and you ate and ate and ate. And what what was happening? That The nutrition from that food was being converted and used by your body, and you were growing. Now, you didn't always see it. I remember when I was, I think I must have been in the ninth grade, so I don't know what's that, about 14 years of age. And my mo- and, and and down down south you just you go barefoot all summer long and you wouldn't uh, put shoes on except to go to church on Sunday morning, and my mother noticed my feet one day and she said, you know your toes look awfully, you know the knuckles on your toes are awfully red. I think your shoes are too small. But we need to go get you some new dress shoes. So I've been wearing size I think nines. So I went down to the shoe store, and noticed that I needed an eleven and a half. You could, and, and that same year, I noticed my first driver's license. Back then in Texas, you could get a driver's license when you were 14. And my first learner's permit, I was 5'6 and weighed about 125 pounds. And that was in the ninth grade. When I started high school in the 10th grade, I was 6'1. So in that year, I grew a lot. You could you know, almost see me grow. And that's true for some believers. They're taking in doctrines so much that you can almost watch them grow. But a lot of the time, it's imperceptible. You only see it after a while. And, uh, and that's what happens. The Holy Spirit, is as we're studying the Word, this is the mechanic of the spiritual life. You're taking in the Word. You're taking in the Word. You're choosing to apply it, and that's walking by the Spirit. And what happens over time is spiritual growth takes place, and all of a sudden you wake up one day and you realize that um, that you've really grown spiritually, and some of the things that were challenges earlier aren't challenges anymore, and other things that you hadn't even thought about when you were a new believer are now serious challenges for you, and you've managed to grow and mature as a believer. And it was the Holy Spirit who produced the growth, but he doesn't do it apart from your volition in making doctrine the highest priority and studying and studying uh, under the uh, ministry of God, the Holy Spirit. And that's what John talks about here is by this we know. Uh, that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us love by his spirit. One day you wake up and you realize you're beginning to really understand and see evidence in your own life of your personal love for God the Father because you know more about him, you understand more about what he's done for your life and salvation, and you're beginning to see areas of application in impersonal love for other people and unconditional love for other people that you just really didn't see uh, when you were younger as a believer. Now, this concept of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being the source of our spiritual growth, is related to other things that um, that John mentions in uh, in this epistle. Now let's go on to verse thir to um, excuse me verse I'm getting ahead of myself here to verse 15, fourteen verse fourteen. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as the savior of the world. And last time we looked at that and we saw that this emphasizes the doctrine of unlimited atonement that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, everyone, believer and unbeliever. And I gave you several key verses for this, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Other pa- key passages on the doctrine of unlimited atonement are 2 Corinthians 5:14 through 19 1 John 2.2, which states he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 Timothy 2.6, this is a key verse that he gave himself as, uh, excuse me, 1 Timothy 4.10, key verse, for it is for this we labor and strive because because we have fixed our hope, On the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Jesus Christ died on the cross for all. Now we go to verse 15. I must have left that out in my slide presentation. Verse 15. Whoever confesses Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Now, this is a key verse for understanding the problem with the false teachers. He's going to apply abiding in Christ and fellowship and the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and understanding doctrine to the false Christology of these false teachers. Whoever confesses, and that's the verb, homo meaning to admit or acknowledge, whoever admits or acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. So they're walking in fellowship, and that's enabled them to understand this doctrine. Now, what does he mean when he says Jesus is the Son of God? This is a key point here in John's John's epistle. Twenty-two times John uses the phrase Son in relationship to the Son of God. And, 20, and seven times in this epistle, he emphasizes the phrase Son of God. So this apparently is a major issue that, the, that they were facing in terms of false teaching, in terms of the deity of Christ. The term Son of God is used over 42 times, in the New Testament to refer to Jesus Christ and just the term son itself is used many many more times the problem is that we tend to understand the term son in a creaturely sense of derivation descent offspring or birth this was the problem the early church faced in the 4th century when they encountered the the heresy known as uh, Arianism. We briefly touched on this last time when I was talking about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, because it's the same problem just in a modern guise. There was a man in Alexandria in Egypt named Arius who taught that there was a time when Christ was not. He would say that he was divine, but he wasn't full, undiminished deity. God... According to the Bible and Orthodox theology, God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are equal in every attribute. Therefore, they are all equally eternal, equally omniscient, equally omnipresent. They are equal in all of the attributes of God, and God, the Father, Son, and has existed His Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. At some point in eternity past, God creates the universe, Genesis one one, and you have the creation of the space-time universe. Prior to that, based on our understanding of Job thirty-seven or thirty, excuse me, Job thirty-eight four and five, God had already created the angels because all the sons of God uh shouted for joy uh when he laid the foundations of the earth. That's Genesis one one. Now Arius taught that at some time before that, but not from all eternity, God created the Christ. And so he is divine, but he is not eternal. Therefore he's not undiminished deity. And Part of the reason for this comes from a misunderstanding of the concept of the word son. So this became a major issue, and Arius was challenged by the bishop of Alexandria by the name of Athanasius. And Athanasius was the one who, in his theology, basically articulated the concept of of the Trinity, of Jesus, as being fully God. And the result of that was the Nicene Creed, which some of you may have recited if you grew up in a more formal church. Now, the issue at the Council of Nicaea, which convened in 325, was over two words. And see, some people don't want to think that words matter, but not only do words matter, but letters matters. Homoousias. And homoi usias. See, the difference is right here. Homo or homoi. And it was called the Battle of the Diphthongs. And what this meant was whether or not Jesus is of the same substance. See, homo meaning same and usios meaning substance. The same substance as the Father, which would indicate that he is eternal God. Or if he was of the similar substance. And everything depended on how you, on just the difference, was one small letter. And in the Greek, that's the letter iota. And so that came, from that we got the uh, English idiom, well, it doesn't matter in iota. Well, it does matter, and it was significant, and it was a major battle. And the interesting thing to note, and someday, you may, hopefully not, but someday you may be involved in some sort of theological squabble in a church, and what you will discover is 10% of the people understand the issue in a positive way, and 10% of the people understand the doctrinal issue, and they're wrong in a negative way. The other 80% usually don't have a clue. And, you know, you can apply that to politics, and you can apply that to all kinds of different areas in life, and that's generally true. And what happened is that in 325 uh, A.D., you have the Council of Nicaea where they clearly articulate the eternality of Jesus Christ. But then things got political. Uh, the Emperor Constantine died, and his uh, son took over, and when his son took over, the uh, the Usias crowd, the Arians, came along and got, got him on their side. And so Athanasius was uh, exiled, and now you've got heresy in control of the church. And, in fact, Athanasius got exiled four times in his life, and it wasn't until uh, later on in the century at the Council of Ephesus and finally in the next century at the Council of Chalcedon that they finally settled on Things went back and forth. For, for about uh, seventy years before they finally settled on it, and the thing that happened is at the beginning, you have ten percent of the people who don 't who understand it, and they 've got it right. Ten percent understood the issue, and they were wrong. The other eighty percent said, "Why are we arguing about this fine point of theology let 's just get together and enjoy the fact that we 're all saved well after 70 years, they began to see the implications of the the position that Arius taught, and that there was no salvation there because you don't have a real Savior if he's not fully God. And so finally, it took uh, a generation or two before they woke up, but finally most of the 80% got clued in and um, finally solidified the position that Arianism was heresy. And so that pretty much disappeared for uh, except for a few instances in church history when it cropped up here and there until Charles Taze Russell came along in the 19th century and founded the Jehovah's Witnesses. So the next time uh, some Jehovah's Witness talks to you, you can always say, well, you know, that was condemned at the Council of, of Nicaea as heresy, and so I'm not going to talk about it. And then he'll try to say something like, well, that was con- just convened by an apostate emperor. Well, he may have convened it, but everybody that was there was a sound believer. And that will keep him quiet, hopefully. Now, we have to understand what the term son means. And this is important. I've gone through this before in detail. Every now and then we just have to take our time and go through this again in a little more detail. The term son of is a Hebrew idiom. For describing the character of a person. For example, in number 1710, the Lord said to Moses, Put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels. That was when uh, God told Moses to put uh, Aaron's rod into the Ark of the Covenant. As a sign against the rebels. Now, it's just translated rebels in your English, but the Hebrew says sons of rebels see it 's not that they were their fathers were rebels it 's that they are characterized by rebellion that 's why they 're called a son of rebellion psalm eighty nine twenty two states the enemy will not deceive him, nor the son of wickedness afflict him. See the son of wickedness is just an idiom for wickedness. It would be better translated uh, just nor, nor will wickedness afflict him but uh, too often you get translators, some want to be more literal and some want to uh, translate the sense of it and so it gets a little bit confusing. But the point is a term, son of, does not indicate birth or derivation. It was a, a descriptive idiom. And the, the second half of the, of the phrase, whether it's wickedness, the son of, whether it's wickedness or rebellion or murder or whatever, that is what's being emphasized. That's the attribute that is being assigned to the person. 2 Kings 6 verse 32 we read, Now Elisha was sitting in his house, the elders were sitting with him, and the king sent a man from his presence, But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent to take away my head? Now, he is not referring to the king as the fact that the king's father was a murderer, but that the king himself is a murderer. Again, in Job 30, verse 8, we have the phrase in Hebrew, son of fools, but in your English translation it just says fools, because a son of a fool is a fool. It doesn't mean that his father was a fool. First Samuel twenty five seventeen. Now therefore know and consider what you should do, for evil is plotted against our master and against his household, and he is such a worthless man. That's how it's translated. But literally in the Hebrew it says a son of Belial, an S-O-B. See, you can always use that now. A son of Belial, that no one can speak to him, and Belial was a designation of someone who was worthless. Psalm thirty or Proverbs thirty-one five, lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of the afflicted. And the phrase translated afflicted is in actuality Benani, the sons of affliction. So that second word, that second noun following the of, is the adjective that is being emphasized as a descriptive uh, noun of the of the uh, person or thing being described Ezra 4:1 Now when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile the ben hagola that is they're the sons of the exile that means they are the ones exiled they they were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel uh, Psalm eighty nine twenty two, uh, the son of wickedness. Once again, is emphasizing um, uh, wickedness. I've got that one in there twice. Amos seven fourteen. Amos answered and said to Amaziah, "I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. For I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs." He was a fig picker. That was his. That was how Amos made his living. He was in. Uh, he was raising figs. So it always describes a person's nature. Um, Isaiah 51.2, we have the phrase, and of the son of man who is made like grass. It's talking about human beings. In Isaiah 19.11, we have the phrase son of the wise, or son of ancient kings, indicating wisdom and royalty. Uh, Acts 4.36, Barnabas was called the son of encouragement because his attribute or his character was that he encouraged People. Uh, James and John were called the sons of thunder because they were rather loud and boisterous. It didn't have anything to do with their father Zebedee. Uh, Luke 10.6 uses the phrase son of peace to indicate a person who is a man of peace, a peaceful individual. Uh, Ephesians 2.2 talks about the sons of disobedience uh, as describing all humanity because every human being is born a sinner and disobedient to God. Uh, John Uh, 17.12. I've got some Greek there that didn't come across in the right font. It describes Judas where we read that he is called the son of perdition. The son of perdition. And there, that is the word apolumi in the Greek. It's the aorist active of that verb. And then, and then it says that he is uh, um, not one of them perish. That's apolumi, but the son of perdition, and that's the noun from apolumi, apaleia. And so we might translate it, apolumi means destruction. Not one of them was destroyed, but the son of destruction. So apolumi is the same word used in. John 3.16, uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish. That's that word, perish, is the verb apolumi. Now, Judas is characterized as one who perished. That means he was an unbeliever. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, he makes the statement to God, While I was with them, I was keeping them in thy name, which thou hast given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished. You only perish if you're an unbeliever. But the son of perdition, the son of destruction, i.e. Judas. So it's a clear statement that Judas... Was lost. He was not a believer and was never a believer, and that is why he could be, uh, po- possessed by Satan. So the conclusion, having gone through all of these, uh, idioms, is that the title Son of God does not emphasize Jesus' birth, does not emphasize that God gave birth to him, does not mean that there was a time when Jesus was not, but the phrase Son of God emphasizes his deity. It's that word that follows the of that tells us what the characteristic is. When Jesus is called the Son of Man, that's emphasizing his humanity. When he's called the Son of God, it's emphasizing his deity. When he is called the Son of David, that is indicating that he is in the class of the Davidic heirs. So that when you come to First John Four fifteen And John says, whoever admits that Jesus is the Son of God, whoever admits that Jesus is fully God, undiminished deity, God abides in him and he in God. That indicates that there is no such thing as fellowship among folks like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're probably not even saved because they don't have a true uh, Savior. Verse 16, we read, and we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Now, this first verb translated to know, we have come to know, is the perfect active indicative of gnosko. As a perfect tense verb, it emphasizes present results, an action that has been completed. Any perfect tense verb emphasizes a complete action. Now, in an intensive perfect, this emphasizes the present results of the past action. In an extensive perfect, the emphasis is more on the completion of the action. So John is emphasizing a present tense reality in the life of the apostles. Remember, the we still refers to that apostolic group. We, that is the apostles, have come to know. We've reached a state in the past, and we still know the love that God has for us—it has—you have a compound verb here. We have come to know, and also we have believed the love which God has for us. So, in the first verse, we see that coming to know is not related to salvation, but is related to spiritual growth after salvation. It only comes as a result of studying the Word. And the Holy Spirit producing maturity in the believer. We saw this in 1 John chapter 2 verses 3 through 5, where John said, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. So how do you know if you've come to know God? Because you're obedient. You are keeping His commandments and that is the Greek verb tereo, which means to be obedient, to, to keep, to maintain, to follow. We have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. It doesn't mean he's not a believer, but he is still an immature believer and has not reached the point of learning enough doctrine to really know who God is, because once we learn doctrine and know who God is, it affects our behavior, and the way it affects our behavior is we're now obedient to his commandments. Now, one of the problems we run into is there's always... Always a few people who want to take grace to an extreme, and uh, there are those who, to quote John, have gone out from us, but they were not of us. Who have uh, been in doctrinal churches and are now riding the antinomian trail, and are teaching that you don't. Anyone who says you have to keep any commandments in the New Testament is a legalist. But that's exact opposite. The exact opposite of what John says. John says, if you've come to know Him, if you matured as a believer, then this is evidenced by the fact that you do what God says to do. You ever? Maybe this may be too much for some of you, but if you think back about to some time when you were infatuated with somebody, madly in love with someone, you were going through that early romantic stage. You chose to do things in your life that pleased them. And you chose to not do things, maybe things you wanted to do, that you know would not please them. And that's what happens in the Christian life. As you come to know God and understand who he is and understand the spiritual life and what's going on in the angelic conflict, then one day it begins to dawn on you that this is something significant and you need to live a life that pleases God because you want to, not because you're trying to gain salvation, not because you're trying to uh, impress him or get blessing, but just because you know that that is uh, how things are designed and it's a reflection of your love for him because you have now come to know him. 1 John 2.5 says, But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been matured. Now we're going to come back to that idea in 1 John 4.17. The, how do you know if the love of God has been brought to maturity in you? It's related to keeping his word. To keep his word, you have to know his word. To know his word, you have to make learning doctrine a high priority in your life. Keeping commandments is central to spiritual growth. It is a consequence of the filling of the Spirit. It is not a cause of the filling of the Spirit. 1 John three twenty two. we read, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. You keep his commandments when you're abiding. That's how you stay in fellowship. That's how you abide in Christ is by keeping his commandments. When you don't keep his commandments, you're in your outer fellowship and you're not abiding. 1 John 3.24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him. And he in him, and we know by this, that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given to us. And then John reiterates that in 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love for God. It's an objective genitive. We'll see that when we get there. For this is the love for God, personal love for God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is all part of the spiritual life. Now, 1 John four sixteen, we come to our second verb here. We have come to know that is the process of spiritual growth from learning and assimilating doctrine. And we have believed, once again, a perfect active indicative of Pistuo emphasizing a present reality from a past action. They've hit spiritual adulthood and we believe the love which God has for us. They are now uh, have come to understand it and are believing the mandates, the commandments related to that love, that is, that we are to love one another. Then he, then John switches gears again. He's constantly switching gears and going back to another theme. In the second half of verse 16, he says, Now God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Notice how he weaves this thread again and again. He keeps repeating this, tying each Each thread together and showing how it relates to the concept of enjoying fellowship, that is, abiding in Him. When you have come to know Him, advanced to spiritual maturity, then you're abiding in God, and God is abiding in Him. Then we come to verse 17. This is the process. You take in the Word under the filling of the Holy Spirit. You meditate on it. You understand it. You believe it. God the Holy Spirit then takes it, breaks it down, converts it into spiritual growth, making it usable doctrine. Then you use it while you're abiding in Christ under the filling of the Holy Spirit. Spiritual growth takes place. Maybe it's slow, maybe it's fast. One day you wake up and there is a demonstration of love in your life. Personal love for God is motivating you. And you're beginning to recognize what it means to truly, uh, impersonally love and unconditionally love people who are obnoxious to you. And what's happened? Love has been brought to maturity. That's verse 17. By this, love is perfected. Love has been brought to maturity with us. That we may have confidence in the day of judgment. See, he ties it right back to the theme of this section in 1 John 2.28. And in 1 John 2.28, John had warned that believers needed to abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Here we see that love must be perfected. We must hit spiritual adulthood So that we can have confidence in the day of judgment. If you don't get to the point where personal love for God and impersonal love for all mankind is developing in your spiritual life, then you need to be concerned about having confidence when you appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So John says, By this love is perfected or matured in us that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. And if you've hit spiritual maturity, you know that you have produced gold, silver, and precious stones, or that God the Holy Spirit has produced gold, silver, and precious stones in your life, and that you're not going to be ashamed, and that there's going to be uh, rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. And then he concludes, because as he is, as God is in terms of his character and his love, so also are we in this world, that is, we are manifesting his love In this world. And then we come to verse 18. Now it's, I can't tell you how many times I have taken this verse out of context and I have seen other people take this verse out of context. It's one of those verses that that is a key verse that can stand alone and unfortunately it's not understood in the context. And verse 18 states, there is no fear in love. But perfect love cast out fear. And two mistakes are made here. Number one is taking the word perfect here in some sense of virtue, in some sense of flawlessness, in some sense of, a, of an absolute state of being without sin. Perfect here is the same word we've seen all along teleos. And in verse 17, by this love is brought to completion. When love is brought to completion, we're going to have confidence in the judge, before the judgment seat of Christ, and so we won't be afraid of being ashamed. That's the point. Matured love casts out fear, because if you've matured in love, you're not going to have anything to be afraid of at the judgment seat of Christ. But if you haven't matured in love, then there ought to be something that ought to be a little, uh, uh, give you a little anxiety about the judgment seat of Christ because you might be might be ashamed. So John says there is no fear in love. If you reach that point, there's nothing to be afraid of in terms of the judgment seat of Christ. But mature love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. Now, this isn't fear in abstraction. See, I've taught this in the past that, that really the opposite of love is fear based on this passage. But that's not what this passage is saying. It's not contrasting fear, fear of anything, with love. It's saying that fear in a particular context, and the context is a judgment seat of Christ. And the fear is related to a fear of loss of rewards and shame at the judgment seat of Christ. So what John is saying in context is, if you reach maturity in love, you're not going to have anything to be anxious about, to be fearful of, to be ashamed of at the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, mature love is going to remove that fear from you. Fear involves punishment. What kind of punishment? Punishment at the judgment seat of Christ. Loss of rewards, as we've studied in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Not loss of eternal life, not loss of salvation, but loss of rewards, loss of responsibility and inheritance in the millennial kingdom. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not matured in love. So if you are fearful, you're sitting there right now, and you're thinking, man, I don't know what it's going to be like when I hit the judgment seat of Christ. I'm a little anxious. Then maybe it's because you haven't hit a level in your spiritual life where you're beginning to have a recognition of personal love for God and impersonal love for all mankind. And that, Don't worry. Unless a rapture occurs tomorrow, you still have lots of time, to get into Bible class and get serious about spiritual life and spiritual growth and eventually uh, impersonal love, personal love for God, will become manifested in your life as God the Holy Spirit uh, produces that. So this is the context of 1 John 4, uh, 17 and 18. And then we're going to come to verse verse 19 where we learn, we love him because he first loved us, and here we see... The the uh, reciprocity of our love for Him that is based on and motivated on uh, motivated by an understanding of His love for us, and that once again takes us right back to the cross. This will be the third time in this discussion of love when John takes us right back to understanding the dynamics of uh, of of salvation and what happens at salvation. And this has impressed me that, that in a few weeks we're going to finish Daniel on Wednesday night. And I've decided that after we finish Daniel, it's time to go back and we're going to have about a two- or three-month study on, on the doctrines of salvation. Because again and again, what John keeps saying is, the more you think about what happens at the cross, the more you're going to understand what love is. You're not going to understand it any other way. You understand it by unpacking everything that happens at the cross. So that'll be, it'll be a good study of some basic concepts for uh, some of you who, uh, who are relatively young. In uh, your spiritual life. And it will also be a good opportunity for those of you who have been around a while. To uh, refocus your thinking on what God did for us in the plan of salvation. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word uh, again this morning. To be challenged by the things that are here. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal life. Or uncertain of their eternal destiny that right now they would make that sure and certain. All you need to do is to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. The Bible says it's not based on your works. It's not based on any kind of uh, moral reformation. It's not based on trying to impress God with your sincerity. It's simply based on accepting the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for you so that all you have to do is accept that payment to believe that he died on the cross as a substitute for you, was buried and rose again the third day. So right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny by simply believing that Jesus died on the cross for you. Father, we thank you for the things that we have studied today and pray that you would help us to understand these things and challenge us to go forward in our spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.